How to Survive the Apocalypse, coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively devoted, that is hopelessly devoted to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey. I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Harrison and Aaron Duncan. Just a reminder to all of Niebuhr Nation out there, we have coming up in October an all-star cast of interviewees, uh, Josh Malden, Matt Anderson, and Amos Young. Uh, all happening in consecutive weeks as soon as we start up in October. And the three of us will be doing a very spooky Love Thy Neighbor episode the week of Halloween, where we will be opening up that new book that defends Christian nationalism. And I imagine we'll be throwing down with that piece, though we will give it a fair treatment, just like we give everything here on Love Thy Neighbor. But I think it's also fair to say that there's a reason we're reading it on Halloween. That's right. There may be some slashing. That's all I'm going to say. So stay tuned for all of our episodes coming up this next spooky month. It will be beautiful. It will be to die for. We'll be creeping it real. Aaron, you need to stop him while you still can. We'll give you pumpkin to talk about. I'm going to kill oh. myself. Jeez. Oh, we'll be very thankful you stopped by. Yes, you have a purpose for these dad jokes. It will be very irresistible. <laughs> All right. So for today, <laughs> we're getting into this, the sixth chapter of Niebuhr's Beyond Tragedy, and it is called The Ultimate Trust. Aaron, you want to get us started with the scripture? Yes, it's coming from Jeremiah 17, 5 through 9. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert, and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots in by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. And it will not be uh, anxious in the year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Good. Thank you, Aaron. So this was... Uh pretty straightforward chapter he actually doesn't talk much about jeremiah though he does bring up um a little bit from that uh, from that excerpt from from jeremiah uh but uh, it's not like some of the other ones where we'll spend a lot of time on the actual scripture okay so this section has four i'm sorry this chapter has four sections and a little introduction that kind of gives the the broad overview of the chapter uh the introduction I, i've taken the liberty to name each one of these i think aaron and i were reading at the same time and he came up with his own separate titles i think but 
these are the official love thy neighbor ones that I'm about to give. I mean, you can think whatever you want. <laughs> You're wrong. So the official love thy neighbor titles for the intro and the four parts are these. The introduction I'm calling Death and Rebirth, Why Christianity is So Dang Resilient. Part one is going to be Optimism and Catastrophe. Part two is going to be about Amos. Amos, the prophet before the catastrophe. A lot of catastrophe talk in this chapter. Part three is going to be Augustine the prophet? Question mark. Was Augustine a prophet? Uh, Rome, Catholic Church, and Protestantism. And then the final part, the final section of the chapter is Trust in Modern Man, I am naming. So those are the official titles. So let's let's start off with the introduction here. What did you get from this very first paragraph? Because I think it was pretty telling uh, about uh, about what's going to happen throughout this chapter. What did you get, Zach? I mean, I found it to be inviting. Um, I found it to be interesting that he was trying to tie all these things together. Um, what are these things? I always have an apprehension that he's, it seems like he's generalizing. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, I, I can kind of see he's trying to gather themes of history. He, he basically, he says, you know, the great prophets spoke uh, when Israel lost its national existence. Christianity was born in the decay of Greco-Roman culture. Augustine interpreted Christian. I mean, he goes on and all the way through to Protestant Reformation. Yeah. Like, so each catastrophe kind of begets a new form of yeah. Judaism or Christianity. And so in that sense, I always like kind of think like, uh, you're kind of generalizing. I'm more of the kind of want like specifics. Like, I don't like to speak in such broad swaths of history, but I mean, he's still just illustrating a point, right? Right. If he didn't do that, we couldn't really come away with his central message, which I think is a very good message, which is in catastrophe from kind of the ashes of the old expressions of the faith, a new, more resilient, possibly, uh, form of it comes about. But it also introduces new problems, too. But I also he, he ends this paragraph, he says, and I put a comment here, uh, perhaps some such rebirth of Christian faith will come out of the catastrophic era which it, which we are living. And I thought of what Jeremy Sabella said that, um, I, was, I thought of two things. One, I thought about what Jeremy Sabella said when he was on the show with us. Uh, well, actually, this is before he came on the show. This was when he was just, um, he just came on to visit with us before we started doing this. And he talked about, sometimes people look at the decline of Christianity in America as like this really negative thing. Um, but in some ways he looks at it as a positive thing because it's somewhat of a stripping away of Christianity's power in America. And it's kind of a resetting of things. Um, the next thing I thought of is Niebuhr in his time. I thought of, you know, it, it's kind of ironic because he, he is actually a part of the rebirth of Christian faith following mm. World War II. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know how. Not in this very moment because World War II hasn't happened yet, but he would become that. It's perhaps such a rebirth because this happens right before World War II. Yeah. Like, right before it and so really like it, there is quite a catastrophe he almost speaks prophetically here i mean actually this whole chapter could be said to be somewhat prophetic in the sense Certainly. that he's constantly saying you know we're about to hit a decay we're about to come to the end of things even mentions germany but so i, I wonder if he would see himself as a part of this rebirth of the christian faith because there is a rebirth that comes out of it or that follows it that's probably something that wouldn't I guess there's two types of rebirth. There's like the, the Niburian rebirth of Christian faith, but then there's like the Billy Graham rebirth, you know? And I wonder where he would, if he would put those two things together or separate well, them. Isn't it the case like during 
maybe prior to World War II or just, just at the start of World War II, there was a huge like resurgence in like faith revivals and huge yeah. evangelical swaths. 1950s were the highest point of church attendance yeah. in our history. That, that's after World War II, so, though. I'm yeah. yeah, so he but, kind of, he's, he, he's kind of right. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. Like empirically speaking, well, he's right here. You could probably say like his interpretation of the air course optimistic calculation about the rebirth of Christianity also comes with a very dire warning. Um, and that's because in every catastrophe that leads to a rebirth, there is some sort of breakdown that always occurs after that rebirth. Mm-hmm. Pride always kind of re-enters in to whatever human beings can create and corrupts it mm-hmm. to the point that it's, you know, it, it's unrecognizable from its first intentions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it goes through a rebirth and then kind of founded within its own sense of rebirth is the new foundation for a new form of pride. It's similar to the Tower of Babel chapter of we keep we keep building and the tower falls, keep building and the tower falls. But this is particularly about the about church history, basically. And then it's going to branch out into secular society. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, good. Now, there we can speculate about like what emerges after this. I would say that it would be Billy Graham evangelicalism is what succeeds. I would love to say that Niebuhr's Christianity is what sticks and becomes the stronghold, yeah. uh, but it's not. I mean, we could say that new orthodoxy helped, I would say evangelicalism perhaps chart a third way between fundamentalism and modernism. Uh, I don't, I don't know if that's a fact or not. It seems probable, but, uh, what is, so the question now is what is most resilient about Christianity? Uh, this is when he gets into the second paragraph of this introduction. Uh, and I'll just go ahead and and read this section because I, I think, I think he hits the nail on the head here. The Christian religion in its profoundest terms is a faith in the meaningfulness of existence which is able to defy the chaos of any moment. Okay, so this is the first reason why it's so resilient in catastrophe. It's, it's able to defy the chaos of any moment because it is a resource of meaning. And he says, because the basis of its trust is not in any of the constructs of human genius or any of the achievements of human diligence, which arise periodically to impose heights and tempt men to put their trust in their own virtues and abilities. So in a sense, Christianity is so resilient because its ultimate trust is not in the greatness of humankind. Even though we can get sucked into that, its ultimate trust is in God. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Thoughts about this? I, let me continue. Christianity believes in a God who created the world and will redeem it. But it knows that the purpose of God may be momentarily and periodically frustrated by human wickedness. It knows the heart of man to be deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The basis of his trust and hope is therefore not in some natural increase of human virtue or some final achievement of human intelligence. So no matter what catastrophe we created for ourselves uh, through our pride, there seems to always be a part of Christianity that is able to step outside of itself and give warnings about this pride and create for itself the next uh, version of Christianity that is more founded perhaps on God than upon these human constructions. 
um, that type of thing. Uh, we get to one part, like later on in the chapter, he talks about how Christianity is actually a really helpful way that we interpret catastrophe. And I think that, that that's a fascinating way to put it, that Christianity actually provides this language and a way of understanding the, the catastrophe as we're in it, if we're open to it, if, we're, if we are not drawn into the pride of the moment. But that's also rooted in something prior to Christianity as well, right? It, yeah, So it can be. Because everything we then thereafter construct, mm -hmm. then, it, yeah, it can be, it, it can get swallowed up into that same pride again. Because yeah. I think there's, there's something, what you said, if I'm going to go with that, each new version can help, I guess, I, not exactly repeating what you said just a moment ago, but every new version of Christianity can help remove the human constructions in religion and help us more rely on God. It's not to say that with each new version of Christianity is some sort of improvement, right? I don't know. I don't know. Because he does land at, on a certain point. I think that well, we'll just have to see how this, how, how his well, neighbors like history of this unfolds yeah. a little bit, because like, I would say, looking back on, on Augustine, that I don't think that Augustine himself, we'll talk about Augustine here in a second mm -hmm. more, but Augustine tore down kind of the hopes that, of Christianity attached to, to the Roman empire. Yeah. Uh, he distanced us from us on, on that matter and made us put our hope more in the holy city or the divine city, right? The city of God. Yeah. Uh, but then he was reinterpreted to mean that is the Catholic church. And so not necessarily Augustine himself created that new thing uh, to... Well, he, uh, Niebuhr says that Augustine's biggest heresy is that he identified the holy city with the church. So he's placing that solely on Augustine at that point. Yeah, maybe. What the way I'm seeing it, regardless is, of how it happens. Yeah, I, guess, I think I think you can have kind of the right motives of yeah. getting rid of the human element. No. But and, it's it's yeah. not like a techno a, a technological um, improvement. It's not corollary to that. So it's like, not like we're getting better and better and closer better and better, to God. Right. Exactly. So because in each and each catastrophe presents its own particular moments for the conditions of a rebirth. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have the sort of rebirth that occurs after uh, Amos, Jeremiah, mm -hmm. um, that you would get with Augustine and stuff, mm -hmm. right? But I think that the, the point I'm trying to make as well is that Niebuhr is always heading back to Israel, to the... Yeah. Prophets. to Amos yeah yeah and he says that situated within this primitive religion is a sort of sense of this distinction between God and nation and so that distinction prevents them from establishing a national religion or a nationalism mm -hmm. and so they have a sense of their own futility and their own uh, insecurity of, of their capacity as human beings to put it in Niebuhr's terms from prior chapter there's always a temple that should consume the ark. Yeah. That there's always something that's greater. There's always something about God that is greater than yeah. our own particular interests that we may deem at any point in history as holy. Yeah. So section, or I'm sorry, the introduction is just basically about um, rebirth after catastrophe, this kind of cyclical almost feel to history that we get. 
Um, and then he talks about the, the parts of Christianity that are resilient, that keep it there. There's always a prophetic witness, always kind of deep down within it, that sometimes it must, uh, the, the, the predominant form of Christianity must die in order for this prophetic aspect to come, come out of it. Um, but, uh, but Christianity is resilient, but it cannot, but it still cannot keep pride from corrupting itself, even if some prophetic remnant of it finds a way to survive its own self-imposed perils. Now, uh, section one named, I named it optimism and catastrophe. It talks about two things that are always tempting Christian faith on both ends of the spectrum, despair and optimism. Both sides of the spectrum, despair and optimism. Despair isn't so bad because he says that not everyone, he says few people live in permanent despair, but optimism, on the other hand, will continue through pride until it destroys itself. There is no end to optimism until it destroys itself. Mm. This is a quote from him from page 116. He says, so great so great is the power of human pride and so inevitable the blindness of this pride that the illusions of this optimism do not become apparent until history itself destroys the very force or source of meaning which men have trusted. Zach, earlier when you're talking about Jeremy Sabella bringing up this point, I remember him bringing up the same point on a recording on the last interview that he, we did with him. We were talking about um, 1930s Niebuhr about him writing this book and talking about kind of the incoming catastrophe uh, that World War II, I mean, he doesn't know it as World War II yet, but I think he clearly senses a catastrophe coming. And we're trying to superimpose that on top of our, our current moment in history. And I think I'm, I made the point to Jeremy, I said something like, it's om it almost feels like we have to get right to the precipice before we can actually see what's going on because we're so kind of inundated in the pride itself that we can't, we have no mirror. We have nothing to, to look at ourselves and to see how, uh, how dire the situation actually is. And I think this is kind of what Niebuhr is getting at here is that he says that uh, these illusions of pride do not become apparent until history itself destroys the very force of source or source of meaning which men have trusted. So it almost seems like we, like we won't know until it's too late almost, but there's kind of a prophetic voice about, the, uh, about Christianity that we can at times kind of, the individual can peek ahead of the corner and see the catastrophe coming before others do. Yeah, I think like as, a, as an example, we kind of brought this up last week, but World War, World War I and World War II Mm -hmm. were significant moments of despair among like the world like this is going to end the world mm -hmm. these wars and then what happens after world war one the allies win there's a burning sense of optimism like we've we've conquered all this yeah. there's no minimum war we've established a uh, a central unifying committee that new world nation. order league yeah, of nations exactly yeah we, we've done all these sorts of great things that are making the world so much peaceful. And then what happens again? Catastrophe. Yeah. And the very structures that were meant to maintain that peace mm -hmm. is a lot of what went into causing kind of the German resentments. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Interesting. 
So you can like, but it's so easy though, dude. It's so easy to look into the past and see that. But what's coming? Yeah. What's around the corner? Well, because we, we did that. the same oh. thing. I remember when we read Sabella's book and David Brooks, what turned him on to Niebuhr originally was he, he was on his way to something celebrating the end of the Cold War, like, you know, taking down the Berlin Wall. And he read Niebuhr at the same time and was like, gosh, we're all so optimistic about this Cold War ending. And now it's just going to be, you know, democracy and capitalism and everything's going to be glorious, you know. Uh, and then, you know, 9-11 happened. So it's, I don't know, like uh, well, Vietnam there should be always, we get from Niebuhr and the prophets, yeah. uh, this sense that we're never quite that secure, you know, as, as we think. Well, and I think we got to read, I mean, you read, I love what you read, but I think you got to read it with the second, the next part to the, the victory of the Christian faith over humanistic optimism is consequently dependent upon an adequate understanding of the, cri the crisis and catastrophe, catastrophes of history in which men have seen more clearly than they were able to see when the sunshine of their own geniuses blinded their eyes. It's like, yikes. I know. Yikes. This is why I wrote my comment was next. It was just, yikes. The <laughs> I mean, sunshine of our own geniuses. Yeah, dude. I mean, that, that is so true, though. Like, we, we, we definitely get rosy-eyed glasses and definitely get... Um, I don't know, consumed by our own. It's amazing, man. I got into a Twitter spat with a dude and he was talking about how, you know, we just need to educate. If we just educated, <laughs> you know, that everything will be glorious. And I know like Niebuhr oh. reserves a section about the intelligent man later on that he's, he's going to critique. But uh, yeah, that reminds me of that, getting blind by our own geniuses. And this guy was just so in, uh, intent upon like saying that there's no harm in education the education is the silver bullet and all this type of stuff and i was trying to tell him you know that germany was arguably the smartest nation on earth you know leading up to world war ii was uh, was had more phds yeah like no. taxi drivers have phds there you know it's a ridiculously overly educated place still to this day it's very educated uh, and and look what happened to them. I mean, it, it brought upon its own uh, destruction and its own pride. It was if if you talk about anybody who's blinded by their own genius, that's that's the Nazis, you know. Yeah. So now, kind of what we were just talking about a second ago, with being able to see up around the bend a little bit, the prophet's kind of task and the the prophet's ability, the true prophet's ability to see what's what's up around the bend. He brings up in part two Amos um, and kind of argues that Amos is kind of what beget the, the prophetic witness of Jeremiah and second Isaiah. Does anybody want to unpack this? Like, what did Amos do? I mean, I could just start by saying, like, I mean, basically what this is about is that uh, Amos is rejecting or confronting, you know, humanity's tendency to, or not humanity in Hebrew people, yeah, yeah, the Hebrew, the Hebrew people, but but I think he's more generally talking about like primitive. He uses the phrase "primitive man." Yeah, uh, <clears throat> they derive their meaning from from their relationship to their tribe or their nation or their country or uh, God. Yeah, yeah, or God. Uh, and so he's like, can, Amos is coming. And he's confronting this. He's um, basically telling them not, what Niebuhr's saying, don't trust in man. That's a really simplification of what he said, but I think it's just trying to get to the core understructure. So yeah, absolutely. Like the way that Niebuhr sets this up is like, you have primitive man 
a God that's unique to this people. And then you have collective man, which kind of creates this triumvirate of self-affirming security where your God is not going to betray you. Uh, your God is your God. Yahweh's here for y'all, for us, you know, and for nobody else. And it, it's, you can't slide a paper between Yahweh and collective Israel. They're one and the same. And Amos wants to drive a wedge between them. So Niebuhr claims that Amos was the first prophet to up, to uproot this triumvirate by saying that Yahweh is not only greater than Israel, but he broke the chain, Yahweh's chain to Israel itself by saying that God is also, Yahweh is also the God of the Ethiopians. Yahweh is also the God of the Philistines. Yahweh is also the God of the Syrians. And that Yahweh saved them all too from different people. Uh, basically saying that, you know, your God is the God of, our God is the God of everybody. Uh, not distinct, from, not, not uh, unique to us. And when you break that chain between God and nation, then that God can finally judge the collective humanity. God can finally judge that nation. And so Niebuhr sees that as, very, uh, as a very significant break, unchaining God from the nation. Well, yeah, and he says, he says at the end of this section, he says, cursed be the, or, the faith of this great epic of prophetic religion could be expressed in a paraphrase of Jeremiah's words. Cursed be the man who trusteth in collective man and imagines that the immortality of his nation compensates for the insecurity of his own life. Nations are also mortal. When the process of nature and history and the judgments of God overtake them, life will be meaningless. If, if it has not discovered a source of meaning untouched by that, by the destruction. I mean, that's just, Oh yeah. That's just like a, I mean, it's just everything kind of comes together there. It's just like, he's just like bringing together this thought that Jeremiah has, but also like, it's almost like you could take what he's saying and like, just apply it to pretty much any scope of history, you know, any, any day that we might come across, you know what I mean? You could just like, just plug it right in there. You know what I mean? Um, For our listeners, Zach is so excited. He's, he's gun pointing the points. Um, turning. <laughs> it might be, um, something of a difference as well where Niebuhr is actually providing like an apologetic almost for appealing to religion to give meaning to catastrophe or insight to catastrophe as well I mean he says in the second section that perhaps the fact that Amos anticipated that catastrophe is proof of the ability of profound religious faith to see the insecurity Mm -hmm. of human achievements even before uh, history fully reveals it because once you unchain god from the nation then you can sp- or start history. judging the nation and start seeing its problems almost from an outside perspective yeah that's what yahweh god affords us the ability to do when god is unchained from the nation and per- our particular interest then all of a sudden we can start seeing ourselves in a from a different perspective than our own i mean as well i mean just kind of put it more simply too that if you are a prophet or a person who is um born into a culture and your values are there are these values you know you're going to judge your nation in the same degree as other people would you'll have mm-hmm. the exact to a certain degree similar opti- optimisms and hopes this kind of does take a difference in like modern uh, the modern world where you have 
the ability to see different perspectives and opinions from other people, other nations. Mm-hmm. Like we can see that other nations hate America. Well, why do they hate us? And right, that's true. But we're still judging even ourselves from their perspective. But if we unchain our own values to something a bit higher than us, then we have a different value system to function from. Yeah, that's a good point. And it it really says something about the need for us. I would say, no matter your political party, to unchain God from your tribe, you know, to be able to, even though, I mean, Israelites had nations on the outside of them, you know, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't until Amos could kind of unhitch God that, that they could finally start seeing things from other people's perspectives, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of, I find it fascinating that a, a couple of weeks ago when we interviewed Eli Valentin, Zach asked Eli about, okay, how do we allow Niebuhr justice, a lot of these concerns to trickle down into our parishioners? And do you guys remember what Eli, do you remember what Eli told you, Zach? Uh, I mean, I, I, think, I think in part he said, I don't know. No, I mean, he said, he said, I know. I mean, he, he did offer like some like basic stuff, like going to school board meetings and stuff like that. But he did also say like, he doesn't really know how Niebuhr would want us to like, how, want the church to contribute to these questions. But he also did give some really like practical stuff, like getting involved in your local community. He told you, he said, have a Bible study from a oh, certain, from a certain, from a certain book of the Bible. You don't oh, remember Amos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amos. yeah. That's what yeah. I was trying to pull out. Yeah, Amos, man. I find it interesting that that is the book he went to, especially given that what we're reading right now is that Amos was the first one to kind of unhitch this a little bit. Uh, when we unhitch God from our tribe, we're able to see what justice is maybe from the outside perspective. Sounds like uh, an upcoming sermon series. Yeah, that's right, man. So part three, um, this is, we're getting ahead of ourselves earlier. Uh, talking about Augustine, but this really gets into the question of, I have the question, is Augustine a prophet? Niebuhr seems to be saying he is, but there's a big but uh, next to it. Anybody want to open up? What what did Augustine do? Uh, what was what did Christianity look like when Augustine came on the scene? And, uh, and how did he respond to it? Well, the way Niebuhr sets the scene is he says that Christianity was an apocalyptic religion. And when looking forward to the second coming of Christ, and when Jesus didn't show up, there was lots of people running around, like, you know, selling all this stuff. I'm like, here we go. Let's, let's get ready to get this bad boy going. And he didn't come up. And people are like, well, shoot. What do we do now? <laughs> Over now. Um, there's a big disappointment that happens. So Niebuhr says, people had to make some sort of compromise with the world at that point, which resulted in Constantine taking over and Christianity became, becomes emerged with the empire. And then after some time, future, another disappointment comes along with the barbarians invading Rome, sacking Rome. And now you have Augustine trying to grap- grapple with this um, sort of faith and trust in the human capacity to build an empire like this falls then you have to just make a distinction between god's kingdom and earthly kingdoms so to put it another way christianity absorbed its identity with that of the roman yeah christianity and roman empire kind of became 
one and the same. So when Rome fell, there's this question of who who are we anymore? Mm-hmm. What is a Christian? And I, I, the way that he puts it in here is its faith rested not upon God, but upon man. So he's saying that the way that they saw uh, Christianity rested on human beings. In this case, the Roman man. The destruction of Rome shattered this complacency. In that moment, St. Augustine performed a service to Christian theology comparable to the reinterpretation of Hebrew thought and the great prophets. So he's basically, Niebuhr's basically saying that Augustine is kind of like a new Amos type that is forced to tend to this new catastrophe and picking up the pieces once Rome falls and therefore a big part of Christianity falls. What happens next? In the same breath that Niebuhr praises Augustine, he craps on Augustine as well. He, so, he yeah. I don't, I don't think there's anybody that he addresses that he doesn't, um, you know, give both sides. It's very seldom that he actually gives somebody an assessment that he doesn't offer, you yeah. know, also an indictment. It's like the last, last week's chapter we read, at the end of the paper, he says we are both prophets and uh, false, false prophets, prophets. Yeah, I in know. the same breath. It's he same will give us of... no security. No. I think that's what makes Niebuhr so prophetic, is he's he doesn't want. To, he never wants to make us feel good. But why does he? Why does he take a big dung pile on uh, Augustine? Why does he take a big dung pile on Augustine? Well, he says. What does he say here? Let me just read this. The Christian faith, he argued, was in no wise disturbed by the fall of Rome. On the contrary, it understood why every earthly city was bound to destroy itself. Uh, and this is a great point that he brings up: that every earthly city is bound to destroy itself. But he didn't link in the church with that. And he separated the, the, the city of God and the earthly city. And the city of God, then Niebuhr says, Niebuhr attached to that of the Holy Roman Empire, the, the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and this sets up people equating. Okay, now we're no longer equating Christianity with, with the Roman Empire. But the church itself. But the church itself. So then you get popes, mm-hmm. bishops, priests, who instead of appealing to Caesar, I think Niebuhr says, becomes something like Caesar themselves. As they are the, uh, some of the popes are the, are Christ on earth almost. See, what's interesting is, I think this is where I got maybe a little bit of a progressive uh feel to what Niebuhr's saying because he says you know in the greatest of medieval popes oh i'm sorry he says a roman pope may at best be better than a roman caesar yeah which is interesting and he gives examples in the greatest of medieval popes such as gregory the seventh and innocent the third the spirit of christ may have been more potent than the genius of caesar but Here's the big but. But since the popes were temporal rulers, the genius of Caesar was not completely destroyed. When they claimed, therefore, to be without qualification vicars of Christ upon earth, they balanced their higher moral achievements with higher moral and religious pretensions than Caesar. But we need not point to the popes alone as expressions of the moral and religious peril in which the church always lives. And this is an important point right here. He says, wherever religion is mixed with power. Oh, gosh. Let me say this. Let me say this with with some oomph. Oomph, 
Vigor? Yes. Wherever religion is mixed with power, and wherever the religious man achieves power, whether inside or outside the church, he is in danger of claiming divine sanction for the very human and frequently sinful actions which he takes and must take. Cursed be the man that trusteth in man's church. So even at our very best, when we like trying to be godly, it can in some ways sanction the ungodly elements of ourselves as well. This is the danger I see in Christian nationalism. You know, what's that? Among many. Among many. Uh, This is a, a, a very dangerous part of Christian nationalism. Yeah. So are you okay saying that these people are trying to be godly? Do we do we give them the benefit of the doubt at that point? You say you're trying to be godly, but you've got this wrong. That's a distortion, though. That's a distortion from what Niebuhr is trying to say. He's saying that he's not like discrediting their attempts to be godly, but that their pretensions that they will achieve, like a that they they, they have achieved. Or like, they like, have like achieved, a, yeah. A finished, a finished past action. They have achieved that godliness. Yeah, you know? think about what, like when people say, like we've heard it echoed many times, Trump has done more for Christianity than anyone. Yikes. First of all, no. Second of all, what they are saying is that we could label out, you know, we can mark off certain achievements that the, that some in the church might see as achievements. Um, uh, judges on the bench, all the federal judges, all the Supreme Court judges that he got in, things like that. I mean, that's kind of probably what they're talking about. Um, maybe uh, combating what they see as secularism, yeah, socialism, that type of stuff. And they're saying that these things are godly. We can debate whether, like, how godly these things are. But then they equate these things. They equate all of Trump's actions with being divine. Yes. Or with... with sanctioned. Yeah. yeah, it is sanctioned by it's God, like that, therefore. It's like that thing, that book, that new book that came out and says that he, that it's like literally says, like, Trump the Messiah or something like that. Yeah, unbelievable. Like, yeah. I think it's like, I, I don't know what the book's about exactly, but it gives the impression. I, like, I read, I read the the bio to it and it, the argument is that in the new testament where there are references to the son of man there are two individual two distinct people that the son of man refers to what some of it refers to jesus but the other refers to somebody else and then he this oh guy this guy plugs it into as trump insanity um, so so you can see how like they would see certain yeah. achievements As, would then sanction the individual. Or, well, uh, this is the thing that, you know, I think Kierkegaard brings up as well, that, you know, we only, we understand life uh, backwards, but we live forwards, right? So we, we always are trying to justify or reinterpret our actions or our, mm-hmm. our optimisms or our faith by what's come before us. The only reason I ask you about the, the godliness question is because, as Niebuhr just said, you know, um, Pope Innocent III, uh, other popes might have been better, you mm-hmm. know, um, and, you, and then you make the comment that they might have been more godly than the predecessors, mm-hmm. but they still are corrupted. Mm-hmm. So my question to that is, well, do we also see like 
certain members in the Christian right nationalist movement as yeah. godly people or, or possibly. I, yeah. I don't think that's his point, though. I mean, I think he's talking about godliness as a secondary thing. I think he goes on to say just after what you read, this is like the really critical distinction. I wrote next to it in big, bold letters. Great right, reminder for Americans. He says, God gave the church its gospel and the Holy Spirit keeps faith alive in it. But human genius creates and human sin corrupts all the historical and relative forms of the church. Whenever the latter are treated as if they have were necessary forms or as if they were no, as if there were no distinction between them and the gospel, the church itself falls under the curse, which the prophet pronounced. It falls doubly under it because its claims are doubly pretentious. So I don't think he's like, he's not really giving us anything about godliness per se, beside the fact that we shouldn't like go about pronouncing the holiness of our own. Yes. Um, yeah. Zach, I think, you're, I think you're confusing what I'm asking. Cause I'm not saying, okay, I'm not saying people are godly or not. Niebuhr's assessment of human nature is we're all, you know, dialectically corrupted people. We have good intentions and we try to do good, but we also are struck by our uh, pride and our egotism. But w- would you say, because it sounds like the, what you're trying to argue against me is that you're saying that these people who are are inherently evil people. Is that the word you go down? Do you think the people in the Christian nationals are inherently evil people at this point? No, what, what I was trying to get at, maybe I didn't communicate this well, and I apologize, is that he's trying to communicate that it, like you can be a person pursuing godliness or holiness, right? Yeah. But the problem becomes when you is this fatal step where people cross over and they begin to exalt their they be, they do what augustine did and equate the church to mm-hmm. the gospel the yeah. kingdom of god on so earth. we're basically saying the exact same thing yeah but, well but what i'm yeah. saying is i think what he's talking about is almost like what we would describe in like an evangelical circle as a crossing into the realm of heresy it's like they've they've they have good in, you have they think they have good intentions but it's they have a heretical view they have they have violated what jeremiah has said well this this goes zach's point goes actually right into the next section when we have the protestant reformation which redefines what that place is of it gets rid of the church and the you know the interest uh the the priest interceding or the pope intercede the the pope is the vicar the protestant reformation gets rid of that but in its place it puts the pious man yeah i literally love this indictment because like people yeah. always try to exalt the Protestant like rebellious side and try to put it as this like, ooh yay Protestantism has you know excelled past and and you know right. it's no longer bound by seeing the church as the kingdom of God. But like there's so many pretentious things that go on, and I think he just he sums it up so well. It's like very yeah. Now we no longer have okay. So just to, to catch ourselves here, started off Christianity found its identity in Rome, okay. Uh, so it placed all of its eggs, put all of its eggs in the Roman basket. Rome falls. Augustine's like, no, no, no. We got to put it in the church. Mm-hmm. Okay. The church is that place now. Uh, the, the holy city, the city of God. And then the Protestant Reformation comes around. It's like, no, 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 no. We can't put our faith in the church like this. We, are, we can't trust human beings. So it gets that part right. We can't trust human beings. Just like Augustine said the same thing about the Romans. We can't trust human beings, the earthly city. But now the Protestant reformers are saying we can't trust, you know, uh, these priests to be to be interceding for us. We can't trust, uh, you know, the saints. Let's get rid of the saints. 
type of thing. Humans are just human, but in its place, it, it builds up the, the quote unquote pious man who is both, what is a prophet and priest? I think he says, uh, yeah, uh, he, he is himself priest and prophet. Niebuhr says that is a very dangerous pretension. Niebuhr says what, what have been the historical consequences? Sometimes Protestant piety has degenerated into barren orthodoxy, sometimes into Puritan self-righteousness of the kind described in Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, for instance. Sometimes the very relative moral code of lower middle-class life has been dignified as the sign of the proof of God-fearing man and Calvinistic Protestantism, uh, Protestantism, and on and on and on. So today we don't have, if we're going back to talking about Trump or something like that, and we look at how the Protestants have put the pious man at the center instead of the church. Uh, it's going to make the same exact mistakes. But now, how do we know the pious man? By his fruits, by certain sins he doesn't commit. And it turns into, I love the way that Jeremy put it, it basically what piety amounts to in Protestantism today, and especially in America, is kind of a list of uh, propriety a list of things that we do that are proper to make us a proper middle-class or whatever person. Don't, well, cuss, don't cuss, don't drink too much, don't hit up prostitutes, whatever. You know, they, like we got a list of things, a ways of looking pious. And then how that crystallizes then in the way that we vote and stuff like that is just, are they checking these certain boxes? And then well, we can, then everything they do then, so long as they check these boxes is divinely sanctioned. Well, and, and I can't, I, I think this is just before what you read, but I, you might've read this, but I, I'm just going to really bring it back to this. He says, yeah, the Protestant, he does not trust the priest as the mediator between God and man. Mm -hmm. He is himself priest and prophet. And that is a very dangerous pretension. Mm -hmm. It's like, like, I see what you're saying in terms of like, yes, I, I don't like the, the overemphasis on piety. I think that he indicts that quite a fair bit, uh, especially like in letters from a tame cynic or whatever it's called. Um, but it's like, he really hits at like, this is like supposed to be the pinnacle of Protestantism that we are both priests and prophet. You know what I mean? But really he just highlights just how pretentious that is, mm -hmm. you know, just how, like how problematic it is to go around thinking you're the priest and the prophet. Um, and I'm not saying that I don't, because that's kind of one of the core tenets of, I, I understand how that's a core part of Christianity. I mean, Protestantism, but at the same time, I also, he helps me see what I've, what I feel often when I, when I experience that, that pretension, that just like, I can see how that's so dangerous and you can see how it's so dangerous on like a political, you know, landscape, you know, you get all these people that are like self-appointed prophets running around, self-appointed priests running around. You know, I think of like, you know, uh, what's her name? Uh, Bobert or I don't remember. Yeah. Her name. yeah she, she's at a, she's at a youth con conference, like for like church kids, you know, and she's there and she's like, you know, this is the end times and we are, we are part of ushering in Jesus's kingdom on earth. And it's like, she has all the authority because in Protestantism, you're endowed with that authority just by being a Protestant. And, yeah. and it's, it's just so easy to abuse and so deadly yeah. and creepy. Coming up with that as well is with the Protestant Reformation, you get the individual as reading scripture 
as trying to determine its meaning of working out your own salvation for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you have no appeal to authority or tradition at that point. Yeah. It, it comes with dangers. You actually preached on this last Sunday. I did preach on this last Sunday. Oh, we, got, we got rid of kings and archbishops and in their place, we put ourselves and, uh, and now we are right about everything. And now we have authority over everything. Yeah. It wasn't a great sermon, but it was all right. It wasn't very good. It, it, was, it was pretty well, good. And I, I mean, <laughs> this, this, part, this part right here is just like, man, I just wish I could like sit this next part, like not, not the next section, but the end of this section. Um, I, I don't think you've read the part about capitalism, did you? No. Uh, no. Well, he... I think I stopped right before that. I'll read it. Yeah. Oh, you got to read it. I mean, it's just, it's just, I just, I put next to it in my. Well, this my is notes. right after he attacks the God fearing man and Calvinist pro, uh, Protestantism. Yeah. And he says, sometimes the ethics of money getting mm-hmm. is sanctified in the same manner on occasion. Uh, so he draws a bridge here between the God fearing Calvinist. Um, and this is kind of probably channeling Faber um, on occasion, the pious protestant is a certain is, is as certain that his civilization and parentheses capitalism is god's peculiar civilization as the catholic was certain of feudalism mm-hmm. all these aberrations give us reason to affirm anew with the prophet quote cursed be the man that trusteth in man even if he be pious man or perhaps particularly if he be if he be pious man that would be fire. Go ahead. I think it might be section and then section four, um, where you know the the issue for Niebuhr as well with not just Protestant but the the transformation of liberal Protestantism is the connection between piety and education. So there's this yeah. sort of this is the very next section, by the way. Oh, is the very next? Yeah, section. I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, Sorry. The, the next section is trust in modern man, part oh, four. Okay. But go, yeah. Actually, he ends up attacking something that we really hold dear. So let, let, yeah. let's let's say first before yeah. you get into right, that, that that modern man we tend to elevate now the intelligent man or the educated man. Yes. This yes. becomes the new place where okay, even in secularization, yeah. uh, we move from Protestantism to secularization. That now the intelligent man or the educated yeah. man is now that place that uh, that we can trust. Now the intelligent man is that person we can trust. And then he goes into and by the way, he, I think he. Prophet, very prophetically, perhaps, uh, called out Twitter. He says, the ubiquity of the written word, which in the opinion of uh, Condorcet, or Condorcet, would bring salvation to the world, can spread vulgarity and prejudice as quickly or more quickly than it can spread enlightenment. Yeah, I so think... So this double-edged sword with intelligence. I think of tabloids as well. <laughs> Tablo- yeah tabloids absolutely. twitter anything else fake news yeah, fake news i mean literally man it's, it's insane um you know I, in the secularization thesis that the more society becomes rational and scientific the more religion we push to the margins become either a private thing and then be squashed out yeah it, it, it's rest on the false assumption that reason and faith are opposite spectrums of garbage of human existence is completely garbage well i love what he says here about the power of intelligence he says for intelligence merely raises all the potencies of life both good and evil yeah the intelligence people are just more capable of both what what is it that you know it's such a like we're using our rational faculties right now right 
And we're looking at the past. We're looking at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We're looking at Vietnam. I mean, these are purely Americas, but there's plenty of other countries that have done awful things. I'm, I'm thinking of, um, um, I mean, the, United uh, the States British, States. British, my other hometown, uh, hometown. But, you know, we're looking at this like, oh, yeah, men did this sort of thing. They bombed and killed these people in the name of their own, you know, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. Why is it so hard to sit for other people to sit there and just think just for a second? Like, oh, yeah, maybe we aren't that trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Why is that such a hard thing? pride because our because our we are blinded by our own genius yeah well i think that you know there's an inherent arrogance that comes with a lot of times if you rise out of a when you're really hyper intelligent you see your ability to uh, excel over others and that becomes solidified as a belief that you are that basically people should just listen to you you know i mean and that can become Mm -hmm. condensed if you've never had to occupy a space where you're you know having to seek someone else's advice i mean i've seen this a lot i mean i have relatives that are like one of them, you know, got four ride scholarship to Harvard. You know what I mean? Like, like they're hyper, hyper intelligent people. And literally they, I mean, I, I love this guy, you know, this family member I'm thinking of, but like, you cannot, you cannot convince him that you know better than he does because mm-hmm. he is so intelligent. I mean, he is so intelligent, but at the same time, I look at his life and I'm like, I don't want that life. You know what I mean? The life that he leads, yeah. it's, it's just kind of like this. But you know, there's a difference between intelligence and wisdom. And yeah. I think that's what modern culture lacks is wisdom as opposed to we're really intelligent. We can put men on the moon. We can make a bomb that literally goes through your window from the sky and kills everybody in there. Um, we literally did that with, with the, the guy who the other ISIS leader that, that, that uh, uh, President Biden just executed. Oh, Zahiri. Yeah, he they, was actually Al-Qaeda. But, Al-Qaeda. Yeah. but they had like the blades that just chopped off his head yeah, or something with a bomb. Like we, there's smart people who can do those things. But, you know, there's the difference between, like, what, is that the wise choice to do? You know, what are those places? Uh, wisdom, the ethic of knowledge. And mm-hmm. I love the way you put really that. Good. Now, if you look at, if, if we want to set up an intelligence in the, same, in the same way that Niebuhr, if we want to follow his logic here, we could say that, okay, the closer you get to intelligence, the more that you have a particular God attached to you. Yeah. You know, uh, we can call that the God of reason. That God is, is attached to you and you cannot see outside of that. Yeah, that God gives you justification and sanction to be just how you are. And you don't need outside perspectives. You don't need a God's eye view anymore because you equate yourself so closely with God, the smarter that you get. Mm-hmm. So you wisdom is kind of the releasing of that, uh. understanding how little, you know, and being and and it's developing an ethic a justice of your own intelligence yeah I, I like that i like that way to put wisdom the definition of wisdom it's really good is it, you know, is yeah. it purely rooted in our um finiteness that sort of wisdom or i is think it, so can it be di- di- distinct from that like can we just like f- just thinking about our limitations of maybe i don't know everything isn't necessarily thinking about my finiteness is it it's just like your limitations yeah yeah. limitation isn't finiteness right it's also the 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 sense that like you could be wrong not because of your finiteness but because the other person is just right you know what i mean like that there's also that element like yeah that's true i mean he also goes on he says and i love this distinction i think this as we talk about this you know i think there's a real temptation and this happens a lot in evangelical circles is there's a temptation to disregard what neighbor says here he says all the achievements of modern science and, and of a higher degree of rationality and the necessary are necessary and inevitable. 
ignorance and obstructionism are not to be preferred to them. But cursed be the man that trusteth in man, even if it be intelligent man, or perhaps particularly if he be intelligent man. We shouldn't say to rationality, oh yeah, hit the door and let's go down to Kinham's, you know, really awesome arc and let's go like, let's, let's spend all day there. No, we should also look at our situation and recognize that, yes, it does add, it is a benefit. But I, it's so strange to me. It's so weird to me because like, as I like come into the future and I encounter people in a secular setting, there's like this like thorough, there, there's kind of two opposite ends, I guess. In the church, I encounter a lot of this obstructionism and ignorance. But then in the secular world, I, I, I encounter a lot of this really weird, like belief that of the opposite of that, right? There's this belief that uh, we're going to save ourselves through rationality and, and they don't recognize like all these, it, I guess I put it this way. They don't recognize all these times in history where people have thought the same exact thing and done the exact yeah. same thing. And it has literally been catastrophic. I mean, I was just reading a book yesterday where the guy, you know, he's, anti, he's an anti-theist and he was talking about, he was trying to like talk about how Stalinism is different than secularism. And yes, there's a difference between them, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, but they were trying to create a secular society. You know what I mean? It's still grouped into that category. You know what I mean? You, you can try to call it religious, whatever, but like, it, it's literally the epitome of this, you know? Yeah. Right? And I think we can conclude, right. That a religious society, there's going to be problems, but we can also say as religious people, hopefully that a secular society, there would also be problems. You know, it's the trust in, in humanity is kind of the, the problem at the well, at the neighbors going out here but it's such a weird it's such it's like i don't know why it's so weird to me but it's like i see it all the time and it's just like hard to take people seriously when they really think they really think their standpoint is going to finally liberate us from our well, just think about like religion is the very thing that they're missing i mean it's it's the thing that is there to tell them that they can be wrong you yeah know? i just like i see in their future like like i don't hope for disappointment but i also like look into their future like i see them talking about that i'm like like have you read any of history have you read right. any of, like kind of like last week when you were arguing from that perspective of the end of death people stuff like that and i kept i and i think i said at one point have you ever read trotsky like some of these guys are just so drunk on optimism that you know that they're that they really found it you know now speaking of uh of attacking people let's attack ourselves because i, I think that this uh this next section that aaron was going to go into uh a moment ago uh it really hits all three of us right in the in the gut the protestant the liberal protestantism okay um and i would say for most of our listeners this probably applies to you yeah. Um, what he says about you here. Let me just, I, I'm just going to read this whole thing. I actually put in like uppercase letters, ouch, because it, this one hurts. Uh, he says, liberal Protestantism has a version of the old humanistic trust, which represents a nice combination of the Protestant and the rationalist variation. The man to be trusted is the man who is both pious and intelligent. Piety will discipline his will to be good and intelligence will direct the goodwill to proper and socially useful ends. Such an effect is the faith of liberal Protestantism. Let it be admitted that intelligence may save the pious man from obscure, to, obscure tentism, 
and that piety may save the intelligent man from futile sophistication. Yet it is barely possible, a possibility which liberal Protestantism has not considered, that piety may rob the intelligent man of his critical vigor, and intelligence may destroy the indispensable naivety of all robust religion. Mm -hmm. The fruit of this marriage may therefore be an enervated sentimentality. This is not to decry either piety or intelligence or to deny the value of the compound which contains both. Yet it is necessary to insist that this form of human goodness, as every other form, is subject to its own peculiar corruptions and to some corruptions which are not peculiar, but merely the natural and, and inevitable corruptions of all human goodness. Last, last little line I'm going to read. If you trust the intelligent, pious man, he may confound you by insisting that the final form of human society is a mild capitalism, joined with a mild democracy, garnished with a mild philanthropy, and perfected with a genteel religion. I had that written out. That's me, dude. Yeah. He got me. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of genteel religion, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there are obviously like maybe little things that we might that if I were justifying myself here, I would be like, oh, that's not me. Yeah. But the spirit of what he's getting at here is, I think, totally me. And he's not necessarily like trashing this combination. No. But he's saying we should be wary of it. That faith in kind of the pious intelligence, uh, the people who trust the pious, intelligent people yeah. are very susceptible to uh, irrelevance or on the one hand, um, or you know, irrelevance on the other hand. <laughs> this is that's the thing I was thinking about a moment, a moment ago uh, when I read this chapter, was it's kind of similar to his critique of Augustine um, where he makes a concession, right? Between, yeah, okay, maybe Rome isn't the Christ Christianopolis that we thought it was, it's the church, blah, blah, blah. So liberal Protestants, when faced with secularization, have to make a concession where it's not just focusing on piety, but adopting intelligence, reason as a sort of Modernity. comfort yeah. Yeah, to that uh, piety. And maybe I might want to push back on Niebuhr saying it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, but I think the concession it's probably the bad bit here. That's the bad part. Yeah. yeah. Conceding to that. Because what you're basically saying is that these people were right. And we were wrong. Right. But, I mean, they they aren't right. It's the arrival of it. Thinking yeah. that you've arrived once you attain this or something like that. And putting your trust completely in this type of thing. It's ultimately just all about, yeah. It's all ultimately about finding divine sanction and a particular amalgam of virtues. Yeah. You know, when you can never truly rest assured with any human being, um, everybody should be doubted on some level. Yeah, good. Then he runs through kind of another, this is whole kind of a litany of modern humans that we might run into. Um, the, the, the pious, the intelligent man, the pious, intelligent man. He goes into the young man next. Yeah. Which I wasn't I like, I like, yeah, the I wasn't, I didn't take much from this. What would you take from this act? Well, I just liked it. I mean, I think that's, it's just another way that we do that. You know, it's like, I can even see that, you know, I think there's some of that in the, just the saying that goes around, like, 
we need to put term limits on Congress. You know, it's like, okay, well, what's, <laughs> what's your what's your reason for that? And I think really it would just come back to not because like young people know anything more than older people, but it would just be like, well, young people, they're the liber like they're the ones with the vigor and the new ideas and all this other stuff. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, just putting young people, just throwing young, I mean, but you could see that happening really on both sides of the party right now. Uh, parties uh, and, it, and it comes and it, about in a in a very the superstars uh, I, I think are, sincere way like I, like if you look at all the numbers this is the oldest congress we've ever had just the yeah. boomers just dominate it so I, I understand the sentiment some of the headliners though are young people you know i mean i think of like the republican party and the guy what's his name he's a, he, um, he he just got voted out but he was kind of a little bit of a superstar Cawthorn. there cawthorn yeah there for a bit a little bit and then there's you know on the other side You've AOC. got uh, AOC. I literally thought of AOC when I thought of this. Not that I think she's an inherently bad person. I just think like, I was like, man, I think part of why people vote for her, you know, I mean, or just like really are behind her might have something to do with that. You know, it's like, oh yeah. Like, cause I found myself being like, oh yeah, get some young people in there. But it's like, okay, well, what, what does that even mean? You know what I mean? Like what, what great. What are they going to do? They're going to do the same thing. They're going to create, they're going to have yeah. issues too. I mean, I understand wanting to not always have everybody be the same, you know, 70 plus uh, crowd but at the same time we're not just going to be freed and liberated by because we threw young people in there and actually I, I think of this in my own experience you know why did they hire at my church why did they hire a, a guy that was in the middle of seminary that was 25 years old to run a church as the head pastor who had no head pastor experience or assistant pastor experience i only ever did like ministry stuff underneath a pastor or a head pastor but they just put me in here and what was the thing that it always came back to Oh, uh, well, you know, you're going to bring in the young people, you know, because you're young and young people bring young people. It's like, right. I have no experience bringing anybody into a church. So and there's I mean, obviously a downside true, to that. Like we need our elders. Like I'm just imagining, yeah. I'm imagining what an impeachment trial or the Jan 6th com uh, committee would be like if it, if it were all a bunch of people who didn't have the institutional memory of going through things like that before studying those things. Uh, not knowing Robert's rules, you know, <laughs> like all that type of stuff. Like it would be chaos. No, but what, what I'm getting at, I think is more just a sense of like, I mean, it, it's not that, that putting young people in there doesn't have some benefits. I think that it does, but it's like, people see that as like a liberation thing. It's like, they make that the end right. all be all. If we trust in the young man, he will liberate us. And it's like, that one is like actually really hot right now. It's really kind of going around. It's kind of become like a, to solve the problem by just you know tweaking this one thing and it's like well yeah you could put some younger people in there i think that you know it'd yeah. be good to have representation at different ages that'd be awesome but at the same time older people have just been through so much more you know what i mean and they've, they've experienced so much more and anyways a lot of people have the confusion too that like somehow the more passionate the congress person is the more they'll get done when it's not really the case like you throw somebody's passionate into congress they're going to get really disillusioned um quickly by just the, the the procedures and like how hard it is to build a coalition um it's it's really hard you know to pass anything in congress and uh i i think that a lot a lot of the trust the a lot of the reason that we trust and we are drawn to these younger people it, you put them in congress and i don't think you put them all in congress i don't think it it really spells progress yeah you know but people think that though they think yeah. that, you know if, if we just got the young like i mean i i only i only know that i've heard this from the progressives recently but it's been really strong vocal like we we got to get the old people out we got to get these young energetic vigorous people in there and it's like 
it's just a trust. It's like they've, they've completely given themselves over that idea. And it's like, yes, like that's exciting, but beyond exciting, who knows what it will yield? You know, right. like, uh, yeah. I mean, nobody knows, you know? I, don't yeah. know I, I, just, I just really like it. I just really like what he had to say there because I think that's one that's often skipped over. Yep, that's true. Um, I skipped over it, but I'm glad you brought over up those points. Those are good. Uh, and the next one is an interesting one. Some of mm-hmm. uh, some of Niebuhr's socialism comes out here. The poor man. Do we trust the poor man? And what do, what do you say about this? He says that like anything in society or in the history of the world, you can't put your ultimate faith and trust in the poor man, especially if the poor man gets a bit of power. Mm-hmm. But he says, but they have a closer idea to the social ills of what's going on. So we, there's a preliminary trust we can afford them, but we can't give ultimate trust to them. Yeah, so they are closer to hunger. Yeah. Um, therefore, they have a better understanding of the urgency to get rid of it. They have, they're closer to crime. They're closer to all the perils of society. Mm-hmm. So they have already a vested interest yeah. in doing something about it. And I, I never realized that that was actually a part of, I maybe understand communism a little bit better, understand why people think it's a more coherent idea than I've always thought it was. I mean, I've always thought of it as like kind of incoherent, but I see why it could be a more coherent now in terms well, of. Well, he, he actually equates it to the kingdom of God, that how, well, G, how Jesus says the greatest in the kingdom are children, how Jesus says that uh, the least, the least shall be first, you know, that, that by putting our trust in the least of these, um, we actually come to some clear semblance of what life is about, what legislation is really about, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the, and this is, the, I think, the point where Niebuhr can actually have a, a hand in Marxist, uh, Marxian humanism. I mean, the point that Cornell West always makes about Karl Marx is that one of his first essays he ever wrote was Jesus Christ, Liberator of the Poor. Mm-hmm. So there's a deep affinity to the plight of poor people and people who who's, who face catastrophes, mm-hmm. right? But Niebuhr isn't jumping into Marxism full boat, dung right. right? So he's saying that, and I think if this were written, if this essay were written by anybody else who maybe wasn't a social, weren't a socialist, they would have been maybe a little bit more heavy handed on this part when it came to the. I think Wolf brings this up, but how the least end up when they get power, they actually become more destructive. Oh and my they, God. They re-perpetuate, yeah. they re-perpetuate the system. Uh, Is that an exclusion and embrace? Yeah, yeah I believe so. I think it's the cyclical nature of violence as well. Yes. No matter what you do. I think that's what I'm channeling here. Yeah. And I think it's one of those times it's just such a demonstration of Niebuhr's ability to actually provide like insight into life about what actually happens. Because it's like almost like you're almost like, okay, well, you just gave this really glowing review of this kind of idea of the poor being, you know, close to what's actually happening in reality. How are you going to, how are you, how are you then going to indict them? Like in a way that's like more meaningful. And it's like, wow, that's just like you indicted everybody else on this list. That's right. It's that whole, like why bullies were bullied when they were younger. You know, they, why most bullies were abused by their parent in some way. Well, There's again, a movement of people. And I've experienced this many times who really think that like the solution is to put, and they have never really couched it and to say that they're Marxist, but they they would just say, you know, we got to get like the poor have to be, have voice and 
Yeah. Um, not just voice, but they have to be at the table and be a part of these conversations and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then, but you, then you see, you know, sometimes one of these, maybe not just the poor, but the uh, underrepresented or the, mm-hmm. you know, the you, you do yeah. see what Niebuhr's talking about. And it's like, oh, that's really ironic because you really do. I like, I can say I, I've experienced that where like these, these individuals finally get power and they finally get into these situations. And it's like, yeah, this, this is a hard thing to do. You know what I mean? To, to actually make decisions and to actually like, and this is where this is where it might be appealing to have man. We're dropping a lot of names today, but John Rawls's uh, veil of ignorance, the idea that like before you you know vote uh, on like uh, somebody a legislator, let's say before they vote on a certain bill or write a certain bill, um, there's a process of forgetting your position and looking at the position of the law, looking at the law from the position of the the least in society looking at it from the farmer's position look at it from the factory workers position and that's how you should legislate is through this veil of ignorance um not knowing you know it, who does who does this do the the best for is is it benefiting um all these maybe more uh simpler people um outside of the levers of power you know um, there, there, I think there are some issues with that that Niebuhr would have with that perspective mm-hmm. in itself, but that's, this is the kind of thinking that gives birth, you know, to, to Rawls's veil of ignorance. It's a bit different from putting yourself in someone else's shoes from the injunction to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. It's a, I think it's a bit different, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah. Is it an appeal? Like an appeal? I mean, you could reduce it to an appeal to a common humanity that to love... Two, two, two thoughts here. Number one, that to love myself, I almost have to love the other person, mm-hmm. right? And to actually experience and do love, you have to love something beyond yourself, mm-hmm. right? But just merely putting yourself in someone else's shoes is closely tied to toleration mm. and what liberalism kind of affords yeah. it's not respect it's not dignity hmm. it's not love it's something more formulaic yeah like a reciprocation yeah type of thing rather than a love that is spurring yeah. from you personally i've never heard that before but that's really good a passion yeah. you should write an article on that yeah good uh so so Niebuhr like says, oh, yeah, I love the poor man. We, sh- we should, to a degree, trust in the poor man. But, uh, but there's caveat there that I think it's more important than maybe what he's, uh, le- I was leading on. But, and then we get to the conclusion. I want to read this last part. This is kind of like his closing statement of his argument here, of his sermon, uh, page 131. Ultimate confidence in the goodness of life can, in other words, not rest upon the confidence in the goodness of man. If that is where it rests, it is an optimism which will suffer ultimate disillusionment. Romanticism will be transmuted into cynicism, as it has always been in the world's history. The faith of a Christian is something quite different from this optimism. It is trust in God and a good God who created a good world, though the world is not now good. In a good God, powerful and good enough finally to destroy the evil that men do and redeem them of their sins. This kind of faith is not optimism. 
It does not, in fact, arise until optimism breaks down and men cease to trust in themselves that they are righteous. Faced with the indubitable fact of human history, that there is no human vitality which is not subject to decay and no human virtue which is not subject to corruption, hope and the meaningfulness of human existence must, must be nourished by roots which go deeper than the deserts of history with their periodic droughts. And then I'm just going to read this last little verse. And if you guys want to read more from this, by all means, but I, th I think he just kind of summed everything up with these last two sentences. He says, the best antidote yeah. for the bitterness of a disillusioned trust in man is disillusionment in the self. This is the disillusionment of true repentance. Yeah, when I read that, I was like, oh, wait, what a way to end a chapter, right? Yeah. It's a good chapter. I really liked it, the way that he approaches things. And it's very un understandable, unlike some of the other ones that are a little less accessible, I think. So how, so to answer the question from the top, how to survive an apocalypse? Trust God before humans, right? And be ready to repent. That's kind of his final message is be ready to repent because I still, you know, like after reading that part about the pious, intelligent man and, uh, and even like the, uh, what he said about the young man and the poor man and all these types of things, it really hits home that all the things that I like are my default of who to trust uh, are really called into question. And you kind of have to end it with, you know, I've trusted all these and I probably shouldn't, you know, completely. But you got to trust someone at some point to do anything. So that's where you kind of ru constantly run into these problems. Any last words from either one of you? No, I think that's a good way to go out. All right, good. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Like and subscribe. Write us a good re uh, write us a good rating. Um, I'm sorry. Write us a good review. We have actually a lot of people listening in now. Um, so thank you all. Uh, but we don't have a ton of reviews yet. So if you're enjoying it, we would greatly appreciate it if you took just a couple minutes out of your day yeah. and just gave us your thoughts, rate us, review us. It just really helps the show if you if if you guys would do that. So if thanks in advance. Any genuine comments of imp to improve the show, we would love that. Yeah. If you think we're total crap. Let us know because we want to. No, if you think we're total crap, don't tell us that. We want to keep good ratings. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll maybe, maybe, <laughs> mess, maybe message us that privately, <laughs> but let us know uh, privately so yeah. we can change the show. Um, also, follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor for news and reactions and quotes. Thank you everyone so much for listening. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.